This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's Bible reading comes from Exodus 20 in Deuteronomy 6. Please remain standing. It's a lengthy reading, so if you're able to, remain standing. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. From Deuteronomy 6. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. All right, please be seated. We won't do that every week, just so you know. That'll be much shorter. But we have started this, this morning a new series on the Ten Commandments called The Liberated Life. And I know that many of you were squirming and we're uh, nervous because the reality is 
all we have to do is listen to Disney to tell us how we should be, right? How we should act. Uh, and our culture is very squeamish when it comes to anything from outside of us that would impose itself on us, anything from outside of us that would direct us in how we ought to be or how we might flourish. This has been happening since the, the 90s. And the reason I know this is because uh, in my house, there's lots of singing. I have lots of, I sing a lot, but my girls sing way more than me. And uh, they sing a lot of Disney songs. And I never quite know um, exactly why they choose the songs they choose or when they even watch the movie that it's in. I'm not sure they have, but I think that they've heard it uh, I don't know, frankly. Uh, maybe that makes me a bad dad. I'm not sure. But I just know they start singing uh, these songs. And the latest one is from Pocahontas. Uh, I didn't know that. I had to ask her, where's that from? She's like, Pocahontas, dad. Um, and uh, the song is, where do I go from here? Now, what I find interesting as I've reflected, right, just like I would on what she's singing or what she's trying to sing, she has no idea, is the fact that uh, Pocahontas, we know this story, right? The way Disney tells the story of Pocahontas Okay, there, there comes a point when Pocahontas has to choose for herself in the movie uh, what is true to her, right? She knows her tradition. She knows what she was raised like in this Native American tribe. But then uh, these people from uh, outside come in and she's introduced to this new life and now she has these desires and she's conflicted because she is trying to find who the real her is, right? The true her. And, and she talks about how she has to look inside of herself to find it. Now, what I find interesting is to juxtapose Pocahontas' struggle with Queen Elsa's struggle, right? Just a few decades later, all right? So what I'm actually gonna do is I'm gonna read to you some of these lyrics, all right? Uh, and the reason is, is because I actually think it captures quite nicely, uh, just in a few short decades, how in late modernity, or some people call it post-modernity, how autonomy and authenticity have become the great commandments of our day and age, okay? So this is Pocahontas singing, where do I go from here? She says, uh, they do what they must for now and trust in their plan. If I trust in mine, somehow I might find who I am. The path ahead is so hard to see. It winds and bends, but where it ends depends only on me. And here's the chorus. But there's some confusion here. Hear this. But where do I go from here? So many voices ringing in my ear. Which is the voice that I was meant to hear? How will I know? Where do I go from here? So you see, she is convinced that she is the only one who can figure out what will bring blessedness and joy and happy and true fulfillment and identity to her. But yet, it's the 90s when this was written. And so there still was some openness that there might be value in voices outside. I just don't know who I should listen to or whose voice should be louder to me. Now, fast forward to Queen Elsa, right? So this is, this is where we ended. This is the chorus again. But where do I go from here? So many voices ringing in my ear. Which is the voice that I was meant to hear? How will I know? Where do I go from here? Fast forward, Queen Elsa I don't care what they're going to say. That's what she says. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Right? I don't care what they say. 
It's funny how some distance makes everything, by that she means everyone as well, seem small. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That is the anthem of our day and age. Not just because it's popular. Remember, oftentimes culture sets the agenda, but it also reflects where where we actually are. This is the anthem of our day. And I do want to at least point this out, as I've had it pointed out to me, that she finds freedom by locking herself alone in her own ice castle, which is interesting. Now, it brings up this reality that in our day and age, there's a conflict between limits and, and freedom and true joy, right? How do they fit together? That, that's really what, what we're asking for. That's what we're crying out for. Uh, how do limits or constraints and liberty and freedom go together in our own lives? Now, there's something else happening in my house a lot right now, and that is this wonderful thing called swaddling. Okay, so I have this little baby. She's two and a half weeks old. And for those of you who don't know what a swaddle is, you you can't leave a hospital or an early pediatrician's visit without being taught multiple times how to do this properly. And it's amazing. It's an amazing gift. What happens is you actually put a straitjacket on the baby (laughs) with this blanket. You take their right arm first and you fold it as tight as you can. And then you put their other arm down and you fold the other side and they're like mummify, all right? And they love it, especially in the first few weeks because, of course, they can't really control their body temperature as much, keeps them warm. But more than that, they have this, as you have seen, this startle reflex. And they'll just startle themselves. They can't control their arms. And so by by keeping them tight, it mimics the womb and it also keeps them from smacking themselves in the face at 3 a.m. and waking you up. And, of course, they wake up too. And babies sleep a lot. Sleep is freedom to a, a newborn, right? They may not sleep when you want them to, but they sleep a lot when you look at a 24-hour schedule. And so the restriction of the swaddle actually sets them free to what they need. Isn't that interesting? So we know that there are times when restrictions, the proper restrictions, actually set us free because you see the, the idea of freedom and limits coalesce. They do come together everywhere in our life. It's about the right freedoms that set us free. And the swaddle would be a straitjacket to you and me, but it's not designed for you and me. It's designed for the baby. And therefore, it's freedom, not oppression. I mean, it's like a fish in water, right? Same thing. Would anyone say that the water is oppressive to a fish? No. It's how the fish was designed. The fish is not free unless it's in the water. Even though most of us, any of us, would agree with that, yet still... The idea that any limit from outside of us could actually help us discover true freedom, that is modern day heresy. It is modern day heresy. We live in an age where everything must be submitted to our own self-authorship. Autonomy and individualism are the modern commandments of freedom. They are the ultimate commitment. Journalist and author David Brooks calls our day and age the big me generation. The big me. Philosopher Charles Taylor calls it the culture of authenticity. But here's something interesting. You realize authenticity used to mean truth, but now it means originality. So I'm not authentic unless I can discover some originality, which is not what it actually means, but it's what it's come to be used as. Uh, It's also been called the iWorld. Think iPhone, the iWorld, 
or expressive individualism or the age of the selfie. Right? So the mindset of our modern culture assumes that we each have a true authentic self hidden somewhere deep inside of us and that the path to human flourishing involves discovering and expressing that true self. But here's the key. In this mindset, we must, not we should, but we must be free from any external authority or expectation that might constrain us or tell us or guide us to who we truly are. We must push against any constraint. And many of us just assume that this is basically true and we've bought into it at some level. We assume that limits are at best annoying and at worst oppressive. Now, of course, some limits from outside of us are oppressive. Some of them are unjust. Some of them are immoral. But that's not what we're talking about in the Bible because our Bible has the words of a God who is perfectly just and who is perfectly kind and good. But still, we have been trained by our culture even to come to God's word, God's law, and think that it is at best annoying and at worst oppressive. That's where we're being shaped. And I think if any one section of the Bible would be pointed to, uh, to describe a God who is an ogre in the sky, who gives us statutes and rules and laws for the mere fact that he wants us to keep him happy, it would be the Ten Commandments, would be one of the first that people point to. But I hope that in this series, at least two things will happen. One, you'll be convicted and realize how much you just assume that ultimate autonomy will make you happier. That the assumption that you make that freedom and limits are at odds. I hope that that will happen. I hope that you'll confess those assumptions. But I also hope that you will see that the law of God is given because he is a God of love. God gives us his law because he is love. Because he loves us. And the Ten Commandments along with the Sermon on the Mount, have been the main part of scripture that churches have used throughout history to train God's people in the blessed life, to train God's people in the liberated life. We're his children. How are we to stay free? We're to stay free by loving and embracing and stewarding and owning the statutes he's given us. He's given us a path. He's given us solidness. He's given us concrete in the midst of a mucky, muddy world. That's what the law is for. And I hope that all of us will have our hearts and imaginations set aflame by all that we actually have in God's word for our flourishing, for our joy, for our happiness. And so today I'm going to introduce uh, this series by going to the prologue. And I quickly want to name three elements in the prologue. And the prologue is this, verse two, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm gonna point out three elements in that. And then every week after that, we're gonna take on a commandment and we're going to see how it is actually freedom because we will find out that the liberated, blessed life is not absent of restriction, but it's embracing the proper restrictions from the God who actually made you, the God who actually loves you and knows what's best for you. And I hope another thing is we'll realize that so often we think we know what's best for us, 
And then our mind changes, and then it changes again, and then it changes again, and it changes again. But in God's word, we have firmness. So today, first, I wanna point to, in verse two, is this element, that God announces himself to his people in his majesty, all right? So now in terms of its form, what we read today, the Ten Commandments, this is very similar to what's been called uh, suzerain and vassal treaties in the ancient Near East, okay? So in its form, this is very similar to many other documents where you have this majestic king who preserves the life of, uh, of a nation that is less than him, and he decides it would be best if he made them part of his kingdom, and uh, that document that gives all the stipulations usually starts off with some type of declaration of how awesome the God is, and then the stipulations by which those people must live by. And in form, that is basically what we have in the Ten Commandments. It starts with the prologue, and then it goes to stipulations. Uh, So if we look, we see here in verse 2 that the king, the Lord, the God, declares his majestic power and gives the stipulations in the commandments. And so the people are to respond. So in this case, uh, Israel is to respond to God uh, and honor him like children honor their father or servants honor their masters. All right? Now, what I want to point out, though, which is interesting, is how majestic is this God? Remember what just happened. Remember what just happened. This God just made a mockery out of all of the so-called gods of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, could not keep slave people from getting away. Why? It's because their God, Yahweh, the true God, decided to rescue them, decided to liberate them. And so in every plague, for for example, it is a direct affront to the various gods that Egypt believed in. And the Lord makes a mockery that's how majestic he is. He, he, he makes it easy. He, he, he even is able to spread the Red Sea and allow his people to walk through on dry land. And so this God is not just a majestic king, but he is the God over all so-called gods. So you see, honoring him would be the proper response, no doubt. But it, but it is important to see that the identification in the prologue is God's name, okay? Look, look here, verse two. I am the Lord, your God. Okay, so God is used sometimes in its generic form, Elohim, and that's God. But then also, there's this name you may have heard, Yahweh. It's God's personal God. So God reveals himself. I've heard it said like this. If Elohim was his business card, if you just met him and he handed you his business card on the front, it would say Elohim, God. But God to his people by giving them his name, it's like he took his business card, turned it over and wrote his cell phone number on it and said, you can call me at any time because this is not about networking. This is not about me building my kingdom merely to have underlings. This is about relationship. You see, I have made you my people. You are my prized possession. That's what's happening when he says, I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So you see, we'll come back to this over and over and over. But what we have to realize is that one of the most important things about the prologue and the way we properly understand 10 commandments is that grace precedes command. 
See, the commandments are not given as some type of ladder for Israel to climb, to merit relationship with God. But God has already saved them. He's already made them his people. And then out of mercy, rather than just letting them wander around aimlessly, he tells them exactly what will bring them blessedness, exactly what will bring them joy. You see, he saved them from slavery and he gives them the law so that they don't fall back into slavery. It's always that way in the Bible. Grace always precedes command, always. It's been said by theologians, the indicatives precede the imperatives. What is true precedes what you're told to do. You see, God has rescued them by his majestic power. And so God announces himself in his majesty as their father. And then next we see God announces himself as the lawgiver. Now, traditionally, in Reformed churches, when we talk about the law, we talk about there are three different uses of the law, all right? So the first use of the law is the one you're probably most familiar with, and that is the point of the law is for you to realize how far short you fall and to repent. The law is a hammer, Martin Luther said, and it is. It is a hammer. It does draw us to Christ. It does show us how far short we fall. Uh, St. Augustine said it this way. He said, the law bids us, and as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it, we know how to ask the help of grace. So you see, I like that better than calling it the hammer. But the effect is the same. When we come underneath it and we try on, in our own strength to keep the law, we become weary. And it becomes our teacher on how, and how to learn to bring ourselves to the grace of the God who already made us his people. And we keep learning that. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is sometimes called the civil use. And the point is, is that although law can't change hearts by itself, it can restrain evil. Because it does promise judgment if you break it. And so this we understand uh, because of the civil law of the land, right? Uh, there are laws, there are traffic laws, for example, and they're there for our good and it can't uh, change my heart when I wanna speed because I'm in a hurry, but I do sl go slower than I would if it wasn't there because I'm afraid of judgment, right? So that's the second use of the law. Now, the third use of the law, I think, is the one that most often gets overlooked, and it's what we have titled this series after. And it's this. The third use of the law is when the law is a guide to God's children for living into the good works that God has prepared beforehand for them. Another way to say it is the law tells God's children what will please their heavenly father and what will lead them to a blessed good life. See, the law is a good thing. You know, so uh, I read this recently. You've seen the show American Idol, right? Um, you know that at the end of the season, after they've been fighting and scrambling to try to win the show, there is a winner. And that person is the winner, the American Idol. Then they get to sing, right? Afterwards, they get to sing their sort of swan song before the season's over. Just imagine what it's like to sing that song. You've already won. You've already won. You're already the American Idol. Everything is free. You don't have to worry about being judged. All you do is you sing out of gratitude. You sing out of joy. You see, that's how we should understand the law. 
is that we've already been saved. God has made us his people and then he's given us the law so that we can experience blessedness and so that we can be a blessing to others. That's the function of the law for God's people. So God is a lawgiver, but he's not some tyrant, right? He's not some tyrant who, who brings people just so that he can boss them around. But he's a God of love who invites people to himself as his treasured possession and then gives them his law so they can live free and stay free. For us, uh, again, this is uh, Rankin Wilburn in the book Union with Christ just trying to give commercials for this book. He shares this illustration. He talks about in the Christian life, there are two songs playing all the time, right? There's the grace song, the, the come and rest reality of the Christian life. Jesus said, come and rest, come and rest. Grace, grace, grace. God loves you. Just come as you are, come as you are, come as you are. But then there's this other song that's playing, which is go and die, go and die. Take up your cross, follow me, come, follow me, come and die. And both of those are in the Bible. But what a lot of us do is we choose which one we, we don't like and we turn that one all the way down and we turn the other one all the way up, right? But then we read the Bible and we realize, ah, we can't do that. So maybe we'll just put both songs at 50% volume and just keep them equal and somehow at 50% grace, 50% striving, then that's, that's freedom. But in reality, the call of God is to turn both up to 100%. You turn both up because they both are real. God comes to you to set you free, but not just to set you free from, but to set you free to. And you need both. You're not free only if you're set free from. What are you gonna do? Where's your honor? Where's your glory? Where's your mission? But he calls you and sets you free from and then sends you out to. So you see the foreground of God's law here in the Ten Commandments is not strictness. It's not strictness, but it's concerned to keep those he's liberated from falling back into slavery and to send those he's liberated as lights in the world. That's what the third use of the law is for. All right? So in the prologue, we're being prepared for the series on the Ten Commandments. We've seen that God announces himself in his majesty. There's no one more powerful than him. But it's not just his power that he wants to show us. It's he wants to be in relationship with us. And then second, God announces himself as lawgiver, but he's not a tyrant who's whiny and crying and needs people to do what he says. But rather, he knows that he's freed his people. And for them to stay free, they're called to be holy. They're called to a mission. And he wants to keep them free by giving them his law. And then the last element for today in the prologue is we want to see that God announces himself as the great liberator. Right, this is really the center of the prologue, isn't it? God introduces himself as Yahweh, yes, but what does he say? I'm the Lord your God, I want relationship with you. And by the way, I want it so bad, I liberated you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so God introduces himself as the liberator. Now this is so important to him that as we read in Deuteronomy 6, he said, hey, listen, there's a time when your kids, when you're telling them about the story of the Bible, what I'm doing in the world, they're gonna ask you, why do we keep God's law? Why do we keep these commandments? I mean, that was a long time ago, wasn't it, dad? Why do we still do this? And the, the first answer isn't because God will smite you if you don't. That's not, that's not the point. What they're to say is, you see, 
God is the God who called us out of slavery. What does it say, 620 in your handout? When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of this? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there. Why? That he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Why? For our good always. That he might preserve us alive. God wants to bless us. And he's, he's blessed us in Jesus by freeing us. And he's, he's doubly blessed us by telling us how we ought to live, by telling us how the blessed life goes. And so at this point, as we close, we do need to revisit this idea in our culture that freedom ultimately is found apart from all constraints. Okay, I've been making the argument that that's not so. I've been making the argument that freedom is found with the right constraints, not with lack of any constraints. The good life, the happy life, the blessed life is found in keeping God's law. And we think that we can be happy in our own version of the good life, don't we? We think it's no big deal to break the commandments a bit. After all, doesn't God just want me to be happy? That phrase that when that goes through my mind or when I hear that come out of someone else's mouth, it almost, it always precedes something really stupid they're about to do or that they've just done, right? Doesn't God just want me to be happy? Like that, like that is all God wants for you. That's what, that's what marketers want for you. We want you to be happy. And you can't be happy until you have this stuff. God wants that, but he wants so much more than that. I'm so glad that God wants more for me than just to be happy. But he wants me to inherit glory. And flourishing in this life never comes apart from suffering, ever. We don't live in the eschaton. That is to say, we live in a fallen world. And so there's beauty, there's glory, and there's ruin always. And the only way we can tell the difference on what is the true path to glory is what God tells us. The law that he's given us. You know, I remember... um, when we just moved into my parents' house, when they were constructing it, you know how there's a lot of uh, earth that's being moved around. And so there was a back door and I didn't wanna go through the front of the house. I was in second grade or so, I wanted to go through the back. And uh, as I was going, I started running and then there was this big patch of earth that hadn't quite solidified yet from all the moving and it had rained that week before and I couldn't tell and I stepped in it and it just, I just sunk down. And I was so close. I, I was trying to take a shortcut to the back door, right? To, meet, to beat my parents through. Like I wanted that. I wanted to beat them to the back door. But then I thought my own way would be best, right? And, uh, and I started walking through this mud. And it was like the thickest mud I'd ever experienced. My shoes started coming off and I was convinced I would never uh, survive this last 10 feet. And I just kept trying to rip my shoe out and it was that suction cup noise, right? I'm not gonna do it, but you know what I'm saying just the suction cup noise, trying to, trying to move in this mud. And you know that feeling when you try to take a shortcut somewhere and you step through mud and you're like, ugh. And then you, you take that first step on solid ground and it's just, and it's like the, the best experience you've ever felt. 
You know what that's like, right? Well, C.S. Lewis in his reflections on the Psalms is reflecting on the question, why does the Bible, particularly the psalmist, why do they, do they delight so deeply in God's law? Why do they sing about it, right? Why, to, to respect it maybe, but why would they find the law so glorious, so exhilarating? And this is how he came to understand it and describe it. He said, their delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness. Like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has entangled him in muddy fields. See, we don't have a God who's flippant. We don't have a God who changes. We, 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 unlike Baal, when it doesn't rain, I don't have to sacrifice my kids because I'm afraid I ticked him off. And so it's not raining and we need, we need food. And so I gotta find, come here, I'll sacrifice my kid to Baal. And then that doesn't work. I don't know what to do. It's mud, it's, it's muck. I don't know. Is it because I did this wrong? Is it because I didn't sleep with this cult prostitute? Why is it? But in God's law, Lewis says, we have firmness. And that's why we, we're so thankful for it is it's firm ground. It doesn't matter how emotional I am. Although emotion isn't a bad thing, it's a horrible God. But I have this firmness. And as I'm getting tossed to and fro, I can stand on this firmness and the law is good because firmness is good and God cares for us and he loves us and he cares enough to teach us his decrees and direct our paths and he reveals his character to us by laying it out and how awful would it be if we inhabited a world where we had this vague idea that God existed and have no idea what he was like and have no idea what he wants from us and have no idea what he's up to. That's why the law is to be delighted in. But yet, the prologue prevents us from getting ahead of ourselves, doesn't it? You see, the law has this amazing unmasking effect where we can't be self-righteous because we, we try to fill the law and we can't. So if we take the law seriously, we realize we need God's mercy. And if we take the prologue seriously, we realize that that's exactly how it's supposed to be, that God has rescued us The prologue prevents us from turning the Ten Commandments into a bunch of rules for ordering slaves around because you're not slaves. I freed you. I've made you children. And this is what's best for you. I know you think committing adultery is best for you. I know you think that's gonna make you happy, but it leads to nothing. It leads to disintegration. It leads to mud and unfirmness and brokenness. I know you think if you had your neighbor's things that it would lead to a good life, but it doesn't, it's not wise. It's not what's best for you. I freed you from that. That would be you going back to slavery. I know you think no authority should be in your life. And I know you think you could do better than your mom and dad. But no, I've given your mom and dad to you, kids, for your good. They love you and they know what's best for you and they wanna, they wanna keep you safe. And when you, when you get outside of their protection, you're in danger, You're in serious danger. And so in God's goodness, he gives us his law to protect us and to keep us from becoming slaves again. Now listen, we all know that happiness is not found in freedom from all constraints. We know that. And I'll prove it to you. Do you love anybody? I mean, do you love your kids? Do you love your spouse? Do you love your parents? Do you love your friends? To truly love someone is to bring constraint on you, isn't it? See, if you love someone, you'll sacrifice for them. 
if you love someone, you would die for them. And you know that is blessedness. That is freedom. That is passion. That is mission. That is joy because it's the right kind of restraint. Your selfishness is not the right kind of restraint. God's spirit in you, moving you to sacrifice for other people, to love your neighbor, to love your spouse, that's freedom. That's the right kind of restraint. And so to live a liberated life is a call to live a holy life. So in this series, I want us to know that these are not just external rules, right? The Ten Commandments deal with the heart, with our basic disposition to good and evil. This is exactly how Jesus himself expounded the Ten Commandments. You see, the Ten Commandments are a complete ethic. They demand purity of heart and all its external manifestations. And when God delivers his people, obedience to his commandments are produced from gratitude. And we should talk about love. We should talk about that. What is the greatest example of love? the most constraining example of love? All freedoms removed? What is that? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. When a man lays down his life for his friends. And so I hope that all of us get two things straight this morning as we go into this week and we launch into the whole series. That in order for the law to take its full effect in our life, we must first receive God's mercy. If we view the law at all as some ladder to attain merit, we, can, we never understand it. It's not freedom. But if we start with the prologue that we are God's children because he came to us in Jesus Christ and died for us and saved us, then the law actually liberates us because we're not earning anything. We're responding with gratitude. And so I pray we reflect on that this week. I pray that it comes into our heart and changes us and that this series would lead us more and more to loving and responding to the blessed life through God's law in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us, uh, for your mercy, your kindness in giving us uh, your law. And, uh, but before that, Lord, work deep, deep, deep in our hearts that before command comes grace. And I pray for any of my friends, if they feel their consciences being weighed down, that rather than turning to performance, they would immediately give up. They would immediately turn around and go back to you and look you straight in your eye and say, where else am I gonna go? You are the, the God of all life, of all mercy, of all grace. And I pray in a way that they may never have experienced before they experience freedom because you see them, you see to the depths of them and you love them and you accept them in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.